tarp has turned out to be much cheaper than uh, we had expected, although not cheap. Hello and welcome to NPR's Planet Money. I'm Adam Davidson. And I'm Hannah Jaffe-Wald. Today is Monday, December 7th, and that was President Obama speaking during a meeting with the Turkish Prime Minister, you just heard at the top of the podcast. And today on the podcast, Adam, why you should never, ever read an economic study again. Yeah. Planet Money is going to fold up after today's podcast. There's no point. Forget all those <laughs> terms and numbers we don't understand. Economics is not rooted in science. Don't need it. Except for one number, you always need the planet money indicator. That's right. The indicator is $200 billion. That is a big number, a hard number to wrap your mind around. The Obama administration came out with this number today. And Adam, why don't you explain what we're supposed to make of it? Okay. So in August, the White House told us this trouble asset relief program where we gave $370 billion to the banks and gave all that money to Chrysler and and General Motors and AIG, we're going to lose $341 billion, we taxpayers. Well, today they said, oh my goodness, we were wrong. We're only going to lose $141 billion at most. So yeah, we're going to lose a lot of money, but it's $200 billion less than what we thought we'd lose a few months ago. So it's almost like we just made back $200 billion dollars, except not really, because we thought we were going to lose it. Okay. Today on the podcast, we are going to be talking to Russ Roberts, an economist at George Mason University. And I've known Russ for a long time. He's a friend. And I have been listening with intense interest to his podcast, Econ Talk. I find it a really interesting podcast. I mean, Russ is very open about his own views. He's he's sort of rooted in the Chicago free market school, very much... uh, um, a a devotee of Milton Friedman's. Um, He's moved to the George Mason University, and he's shifted a lot more towards the Austrian School of Economics, which is also free market. It's similar to the Chicago School, but there's all sorts of differences. But what's interested me is over the last year or two, he's been questioning the very nature of economics and questioning his own views, like Are his views based on facts that he has learned through empirical research, or is it just ideology? And I found it so interesting, I gave him a call the other day. Well, I have my own philosophical views. I have my own policy perspectives, my own preferred solutions to various policy problems, right? What's changed is that I don't delude myself into thinking that the reason I hold my views is because I have better evidence on my side. My studies were the ones that are done well. The other side, those studies, ah, they've missed this. They left that out. This was mismeasured. That's a crummy study. That's what they rely on. I think they're all not so good now. Even the guys on my side who purport to claim that this policy or that policy is the right one, their empirical work's not so good either. So so I remember a few years ago, I, I was doing some reporting on on the minimum wage. And there's these two claims, minimum wage causes unemployment among the people who can least afford it, and no, minimum wage helps those people. And to me, it seemed easy and obvious. All I have to do is find the studies. And um, and, and the studies would tell me. But what I found is left-wingers had studies that made a case that minimum wage helped, 
And right-wingers had studies that made the case that minimum wage hurt. That's right. And I couldn't really know. Yeah, and you're not a you're not an economist, so which one's right? Uh, what's the right answer? You have dueling studies. So those of us who are closer to the kitchen, who who know how those studies are done, uh, we'd look at them and we'd say we could always poke holes in all of them on either side. I can tell you what's wrong with the studies by Card and Kruger that found that the minimum wage actually helps employment among low-skill workers. And the other side has critiques of my side that says that, no, 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 it hurts the workers who it's trying to help. So the question is, what do you do? And you'd think, as you did more and more studies, you'd get better and better answers, closer and closer to the truth. Because that you, is what happens in natural science. If, if we didn't know the gravitational constant, you know, you just drop a bunch of things in a vacuum, eventually you're going to figure it out. That's right. Yeah. And I would argue that in economics, we struggle to try to mimic that precision and progress that we see in other sciences. And there's a reason for it. And this is what's important. One of the reasons that, we see that that's true is that our data are very imperfect. By definition, a worker who's working eight hours on the job today in 2009 has a very different experience than a worker in 1950 who worked eight hours a day. There's a lot, just to take this as an example, there's a lot more leisure on the job today. It's not the same amount of work, really, even though you're on the job eight hours a day. A year of education, we often are looking at the relationship, say, between education and the minimum wage or education and earnings. A year of education today is not the same as a year of education 20 years ago. My year of education studying economics may not be the same as your year of education studying physics or psychology. They're going to be different additions to my skill set. But all we have perhaps in the data is he went to school for a year. So those issues are unavoidable in economics. They're very different than, say, in physics, where you can locate where the moon is right now, or you know uh, uh, how high a mountain is. And so a hydrogen atom in 1953 like. is a hydrogen pretty, atom in 2009. Pretty similar. That's one reason we struggle to be as precise. But the other reason is much more interesting and I think much more uh, profound. And that is that economic systems are complex. They involve the interaction of agents who are people who are trying to achieve certain ends in flawed ways. We're all imperfect. On top of that, we have the rules and regulations of the legislative and legal system and uh, all the norms and cultural uh, things that we carry along with us. And we don't really understand those interactions in a scientific way. We like to think we'd have them. We model them. We write equations. But our the things we're trying to model are not like electrons. They have a mind of their own, and we don't fully observe them the way we do in electrons. Of course, physics has a similar problem with where electrons are. I don't want to overstate the precision of physics. They got their own uncertainty. But the implications for things like building a bridge, we can ignore that. But in economics, if we want to know whether the stimulus package is going to work, we ignore those at our peril. Or if we're going to try to figure out how to make the financial system better, and we're going to say, well, let's just raise these capital requirements. And we don't fully understand what that's going to do to, say, the political economy, the interactions between executives on Wall Street, uh, members of Congress, lobbyists, and the rules they pass. Uh, we're going to make some really bad policy errors, as we've seen. So I make an analogy between financial crashes and airplane crashes. Financial Airplane crashes, we get better and better at preventing them. We study the data. We see what caused them. We learn. We then improve how we build our airplanes and how we build our regulatory system. It gets better. We get fewer crashes per mile every year. It's, a, it's extraordinarily and wonderful. 
we don't get fewer financial crashes per decade. In fact, we seem to be getting more. And they're more violent. (laughs) They are. And we've got and there's more destruction. So we've got more data. We've got lots more people studying it. They're more economists than ever before. They're still pretty smart people. Why don't we get better at that? Why can't we design a better financial system the way we can design a better airplane system, an airplane uh, traffic control system, say, or the way that airplanes are maintained, how frequently? We can't do it. And it's because it's an inherently more complex system than an airplane. And we shouldn't pretend that they're the same kind of problem. But we do. We pretend that they are, which means we get a false sense of hubris of how we can solve things rather than deal with the reality of how they are. So why do we need economists? You guys don't know anything. Get rid of them. Uh, We don't need economists for predicting. uh, I think it's dangerous, uh, just to take an example, to predict how many jobs are going to be created by this stimulus. Uh, The CBO studies of this are not really very reliable. For example, they just evaluated the job uh, gains from the last stimulus. They said it ranged from 600,000 to 1.6 million. Now, does that strike you as a scientific range? One number two and a half times the other number? And they'll confess it isn't really an estimate. They just use the constants that they have observed in past recessions. So it's just a guess. It's not a scientific estimate. Um, So what do we need economists for? Well, what we need economists for is to remind us, one, to have less hubris. That's very important. Not to be overconfident about what we can build. For that, I could buy a (laughs) T-shirt. Have less hubris. Yeah, well, that's not bad. Except it's strikingly difficult to remember to have less hubris. Uh, So I'll put a plug in for us there. But I think the deeper thing we understand are things, are fundamental principles. Things like there's always trade-offs. So that if you say want to reform health care by subsidizing health care and then at the same time hold down costs, that's kind of like developing a fuelless car, a car that's going to get more miles to the gallon, be lighter, and be free. I mean, it just... It isn't going to happen. It violates the fundamental laws of economics the way a pig that could fly uh, violates the laws of physics. It, we do have certain important core fundamental insights into how people interact that are good to remember. So trade-offs is always true, that there's no free lunch is always true, uh, that people respond to incentives, but it's complicated because you have to look at how those responses then affect things uh, and, and what happens after that. Those are the essence of economics that almost all economists agree on. So they all agree on that. What they don't agree on is the policy implications. And I would suggest that some of those policy differences, some, all, almost all, are ideological and philosophical, not scientific. So why are you still basically a libertarian? Why not take this and go, oh, I'm going to make no ideological commitments because I don't think they can be based on anything? Well, I think they are based on something. I think our ideological commitments are based on fundamental beliefs, our understanding of how the world works. It's just not based on fancy econometric studies. So my overwhelming uh, belief on why markets are good is my fundamental skepticism about how government works. Now, I can't prove in a scientific way that government is prone to special interest corruption, that regulation is prone to capture, uh, that... Uh, politicians are no better than anyone else. They're human beings who pursue their own self-interest. But I think it's true. It is confirmed in casual ways by the evidence of the world around me. But I don't have a fancy study to prove it. Having said that, I don't want to argue that facts don't matter. Facts do matter. Uh, Information does matter. 
What I'm talking about is the gussying up of that information in fancy forms that uh, academic economists use in their journal articles, which usually are, are not reliable. So I, I feel like hearing Russ talk, I mean, first of all, I, I just like it when someone questions the fundamental nature yeah, of their nice. profession and their way of life. Um, there's something very satisfying about that. But I also wonder if there's a simpler way to think about economics, that it's good at what it's good at and it's not good at what it's not good at. And so, you know, economics is lousy at predicting the future. Although there's an obsession with economists predicting the future and that economists should be able to and that for the whole field to have any value. It needs to be predictive. It makes me think of meteorologists. Meteorologists are not very good at predicting the, the weather. The seven-day forecast. The seven-day or the 21-day or what will the weather be in 2011, just like economists don't really know what the economy is going to be like eight months from now. But if you want to understand wind patterns and clouds and, clouds and how rainfall works, right. they probably have some insights. So. Maybe we don't have to throw out the entire field of economics. You might read another economic study again. We'll see. We'll <laughs> see. All right. You can find us on the web at npr.org slash money. There's a link there to an interview Adam did today on All Things Considered about that indicator we had at the top, the $200 billion and what to think about it. I'm Kana Joffrey-Walt. And I'm Adam Davidson. Thank you for listening. Thank you.